I don't know if you've ever read or heard of uh, C.S. Lewis's book, The Screwtape Letters, um, but let me recommend it to you highly. Um, it's a, if you've never heard of it, if you don't know what this book is, The Screwtape Letters, it's a series of letters, shocker, um, but it's a series of letters written from a demon, Screwtape, to his apprentice, Wormwood, who's also a demon. So you've got letters going from a trainer, Screwtape, to his apprentice, who happens to be his nephew. I don't know how that works in the demon world, but whatever. Wormwood, right? So Wormwood is fairly new to this, and he is learning the art of temptation. And he's been assigned to a particular human being, and the letters instruct Wormwood in how best to tempt the human being that he's been assigned to, and how to understand the enemy. Now, of course, in the book, the enemy is God, right? So anytime you read enemy, you're, he's talking about God. And so it's really a, a helpful, helpful book um, that Lewis wrote. And in one of the chapters, Screwtape, the trainer, is teaching Wormwood about how he should try to manipulate and tempt his human being in regards to the church. And so one of the things he says to him is, listen, you, I, you, you mentioned in your last letter that your human has been attending the same church over and over again. And in fact, he's been attending the same church and only that church since he's become a believer. And he says to Wormwood, listen, you cannot tolerate this. You've got to keep him from remaining faithful to this one church. And here's what he says. Do you realize that unless it is due to indifference, it is a very bad thing, this going to the same church over and over again? It's a bad thing. Surely you know that if a man can't be cured of church going, the next best thing is to send him all over the neighborhood looking for the church that suits him until he becomes a taster or connoisseur of churches. The reasons are obvious. In the first place, the parochial or local organization should always be attacked because being a unity of place and not of likings, it brings people of different classes and psychology together in the kind of unity the enemy, God, desires. Do you see the root reason here why demons are so passionately against the church? What's the real issue with what's going on here this morning? The real issue that they have with the church is because God's vision for the church is to be a place of unity. It's the primary thing. And it's, I love the way he says it's not based on tastes or particular likings. It's not about what suits us that makes the church a valuable place, an important place. What makes it important in a place of unity is that it's centered on the work of Jesus Christ. And because it's centered on his work, when diverse people are brought together into one body and are faithful to that body, it shows the value and the worth of the redemption that Jesus Christ has purchased. And so really, the church should be a place 
where people that normally wouldn't be together are together. People should look in from the outside and go, what are you guys doing together? You don't like the same things. You don't have the same hobbies. But man, there's a sweet unity of purpose and passion, and we serve and we love one another. And that type of environment is what the demons hate more than anything else because that is what God, through the work of Christ, is creating in his church. And that's exactly what Paul is describing in this passage in Ephesians chapter 2. So you can open up there if you're not there. Thank you to Mark for reading that this morning. Ephesians 2, verses 11 to 22. The work of Christ has brought... In this passage, very different people together into one new man. And I think much of the time we don't think about our church, the church, our church, as a place of peace and as a place of unity. And so because we don't think about this as a place of unity, we don't see cultivating unity and pursuing peace and harmony and unity with one another as really that high of a priority. Yeah, it's kind of down the list, but there are other things that we're pursuing, like getting what I want. But Paul says that you and I need to understand ourselves. We need to think about ourselves. We need to identify ourselves as a unified people who've been saved by Christ and are pursuing the same things and are here for one another. And so that's why we started looking at this passage by asking the question, who are we? In chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, we asked, who am I? And in this section, we're asking, who are we? Because we want to reshape our understanding of who we are together and what it is that we're doing here together and what we should be pursuing together as the body of Christ. And so we're trying to answer that question from this text. And we started, started last week. We said we're going to look at three facets Three aspects, three facets of our unified identity as a church. And the goal is that these would motivate us to pursue and live in peace with one another. There's a practical implication for these corporate understandings of who we are. The first one of these we looked at last week, we were divided from one another, and this is important. I mean, you have to keep in mind the very sharp divisions that human beings have and that they create between one another before Jesus Christ. And that's exactly what Paul describes here in verses 11 through 13. I mean, you could see in these verses, if you just glance there, verse 11, he says, therefore, remember. And then in verse 12, he says it again, remember, because he wants them to understand, listen, you were divided. You guys were split apart. You wouldn't normally have associated together or spent any time together. And so to fully appreciate this new corporate identity, this new understanding of who you are, you have to Start by understanding how divided you once were, how different you were before Christ brought you together. And that's our second one. We were divided, but now here's the work of Christ. This is objectively what has happened. We are reconciled to one another and to God. This is in verses 14 to 18. So there was division. Our sin has brought division in all sorts of relationships with one another. But Christ came and he brought two types of reconciliation. First of all, he brought horizontal reconciliation between us, between one another. Look at verses 14 and 15. For he himself, Christ, is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. 
by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. He brought Jew and Gentile together by the blood of Christ so that one new man was created, a place of peace and unity instead of the two, a place of division. So we have horizontal peace with one another. That's objectively true, but we also have vertical peace with God. Verses 16 to 18. Look at verse 16. And he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility, the hostility between us and God, the vertical hostility that was there. Verse 17, and he came and preached peace to you who were far off, us, Gentiles, separated from God. But he also preached peace at the end of verse 17 to those who were near, to the Jews as well. Even though they had the covenants, they needed the work of Christ to give them forgiveness of sins. And so now we both together have mutual access to God. And that's what he says in verse 18. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. We have peace with one another and we have peace with God, which is a glorious situation to be in. And he wants us to understand that because there are implications of those realities for the way we live together. And that's what we're going to look at this week in our third facet of our unified identity as a church. Now, before I put this up on the screen and give it to you, I want you to look at verse 19. Look how he begins this verse. So then, right? So it's like he's saying, okay, I'm going to summarize now. I've built this whole case of unity and reconciliation between Jew and Gentile, between people who are divided, and now I'm going to tell you what this means. I'm going to summarize the argument and bring it to completion and give you the main point. Here's the takeaway. So he's given us life before Christ. He's given us the work of Christ. And now he's going to tell us, here is how you are to understand yourselves as the church. So this is why this matters so much this week. Right? If someone were to ask you, well, what do you, what do you do there on Sunday? Somebody at work, like what, what is your church? How, like, why do you go? What's the, what's the purpose of all of it? Why do you meet together? Why do you hang out with all of those people there at church? This is the answer, what we're about to give you, the third facet here. And here it is. We are the unified church growing together into God's dwelling place. Now, I'm not saying you need to answer it specifically with those words, although that would be pretty funny. If someone did ask you, why do you go to church, and you said this, that would be a great response to that. But this is the core understanding of who we are together. So look at verse 19 here. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens. So again, he's bringing it to a point, summarizing it by going back to what he said before. You used to be strangers and aliens. Look back at at verse 12. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers. So he's reminding you of verse 12 and reminding you of how far outside of Christ you once were And he's doing this because he wants you to know, listen, this is not who you are now. You're not people of division. And so he's making an objective statement about who we are now. 
and who we used to be. You used to be on the outside, but now, but now I want you to think in terms of a new way, of a new identity. Here's how I want you to understand yourselves. And he explains this in the rest of verse 19. You're no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So, two metaphors here for us as the church, right? First one is political. Here's how we should think of our relationships with one another. We are citizens of God's kingdom. Now, what country are you a citizen of? Most people in here, I would imagine, were born U.S. citizens. And because you were born a U.S. citizen, that brings a certain understanding to the way you live. A certain way that you go about life because of being raised as a U.S. citizen and because you are a U.S. citizen. It dictates some of your actions, some of your beliefs, some of your understanding of the world. And so Paul says here that you are citizens of God's kingdom, but he's not just talking individually, right? Like he's not just saying you as an individual are a citizen of God's kingdom. Look what he says. You are fellow citizens with the saints. And so he's not just thinking individually. He's saying, look, I want you to think of who you are citizens with. Who else is a part of God's kingdom? All the other people that are citizens of God's kingdom, that's who I want you to think about here when you think about who you are as the church. Not just your relationship to the kingdom, but all of us together. So he uses a political metaphor, your citizens of God's kingdom with the saints, but he also uses a family metaphor here, a household metaphor. Back in verse 19, you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Now, sometimes, you know, thinking of ourselves as citizens, like a, a political, you know, understanding there, that can get kind of hazy and, and not real personal, right? Because there's millions of people who are also citizens with us of our country. But this metaphor that he uses here is very, very intimate and very, very specific. You're not just citizens together, although you are that. You are members of the same family, you saw all the way back in chapter 1, verse 5. If you flip back over there just for a second, I want to show you this, remind you of this. Verse 5, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. So you have been, if you're a believer, you have been adopted into God's family. And that happened individually, but when you were placed in that family now you are members together with everyone else who's been adopted. And you're members of the same family. And when you're members of the same family, there's, there's certain obligations that are there. There's certain disposition that you should carry toward those who are your kin. Certain loyalty and affection. And so, I mean, think about this as the church. If we started to really think of ourselves as members of the same family, the same household, how would that impact the way we relate to one another, the way we talk to one another, the way we are concerned for one another? I mean, these are my brothers and sisters. 
I feel a very special sense of obligation and care for my brother who lives in California because he's family. So what would that look like amongst the church? Well, Paul talks about this elsewhere. And there's a higher level of responsibility here. Galatians 6.10, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, right? Like, we want to be kind and gracious and do good to all people because they're made in God's image. And especially to those who are of the household of faith. There is a higher level of care, concern, and responsibility to family members. That's true of us as a church. So these are two metaphors that Paul's using, political and household, and he wants to shape our understanding of the relationships that we have in the church here. But these two metaphors only show us how to relate to one another because of what ties them together and what they're built on. This is found in verse 20. This is the basis for why we are fellow citizens and why we're of the same family in the same household. Verse 20. You are built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So, He uses that same image of the household, right? Like we're the household, we're members of the same family. And he takes that image of a house and he says, if we're all members of the same house, then that house has been built on something. What has it been built on? It's been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Well, who are those people? Well, the apostles are those who witnessed the work of Christ and played a key role in the founding of the church. They witnessed the risen Christ, and here's the key about the apostles. They were sent by Jesus to proclaim God's revelation concerning Jesus Christ. But it's not just the apostles, it's also the prophets. The prophets were given to the early church before the canon of Scripture was finalized, and they were to proclaim revelation from God to people that didn't have it. And so both apostles and prophets were speaking about something. They were conveying a message to the church and to people that they had received. So what was the core of their message? What were they talking about that provided the basis for the church? Verse 20, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. This was the subject of their preaching and of their teaching. So if you... Picture this metaphor, right? Like we're, we're a house and we're being built up and we're based on the foundation of the preaching and teaching of the apostles and the prophets. That's the foundation. And that foundation is built off of Jesus Christ as the cornerstone. So what, what does that mean? We don't use that language of cornerstone a whole lot today when we're talking about building. Well, in this time, when buildings were constructed, when they were built... They were built on a foundation of stones to give them security, to make them last. You know, they couldn't go and order rebar and go to the local cement, you know, company and get them to bring a cement truck out and pour the foundation in. So they had to get stones and they had to build the foundation out of stones and the stones had to be properly set and the stones had to fit together. They didn't use mortar here 
to make the stones fit together. So they, they had to find stones and they had to cut stones so that they fit. And so the first stone that was set had to be a perfectly formed and fashioned stone. And that was the cornerstone. And it was set in the foundation. It was the first one to go there. And then every other stone in the foundation was aligned to that cornerstone. Every other stone that was built out had to match up and had to fit with the cornerstone. It's the first one put in the foundation. And this image here of Paul describing Jesus as the cornerstone, this is actually taken from the Old Testament. And there's something interesting about the verse that he takes this from. He says, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who is laid as a foundation in Zion, a stone, and look at this language here, a tested stone. You could read that, a stone of testing. In other words, what that means is every other stone put in the foundation and ultimately the whole house is tested based on that cornerstone. It is the standard. A precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. So the whole thing is built outward from the cornerstone, the foundation. But the impact doesn't stop with the foundation. Look at verse 21. The whole building is aligned according to the cornerstone. Verse 21, in whom the whole structure, right? In the cornerstone, the whole structure being joined together, fit together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. It's all built according to the cornerstone, and it grows into a temple, a holy temple, which, of course, the temple is the house of God. It's where God lives. And so just let's kind of pause for a minute here and think about the massive implications of this image that Paul is giving us of us as the church. We're the church growing together The structure is growing, it's being built up, the house is going up, God's house is going up over time. It's based on a foundation of stones, which is the preaching and teaching of the apostles and the prophets, and the whole thing is aligned to the cornerstone, the first stone set, which is Jesus Christ. And so think about what this means for you and I. You and I are rough stones, We do not come perfectly aligned with the cornerstone, do we? We are rough stones, and we need to be shaped and trimmed and cut so that we can fit and align with the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what happens is most of us come into the church, and we think, well, I don't have any rough areas that need to be trimmed away. I am good. And in fact, some of us can act as if we are the cornerstone and everybody else needs to be cut and trimmed in order to align with me rather than with the Lord Jesus. And so it's tempting to demand that in the church, isn't it? It's tempting to act as if Everyone else needs to align with my preferences and my desires. And then when they don't bend to what I want to, then I get frustrated with that. But see, really, what the the growing and the work that is happening in the church here 
is not numerical growth in the church. It's actually, actually growth in you and I as our rough edges are trimmed away and we are aligned to fit together better and to fit and align ourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ, the cornerstone. That's the growth that is happening in verse 21. That's what he means by church growth here. It's you and I aligning together with Christ, and when we align together with Christ, we align better with one another. Well, how does that happen? What does that look like? Well, remember how the book of Ephesians comes in two sections. Recall who you are in verse chapters 1 to 3, and then react to that identity in chapters 4 through 6. Well, in chapter 4, he tells us what this looks like. It's beautiful. Not accidental. Look at chapter 4, verse 15. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow, right? Here's the same language. Here's what this looks like. Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. It's a bit of a different metaphor there of a body instead of a house, but it works. We'll give Paul the benefit of the doubt here. So how do we do this? How do we align ourselves with Christ? How do we grow together? How do we cut the rough edges away How does this happen to you and I this week? It's when we speak the truth in love to one another. It's when we talk about the word of God. It's when we discuss the principles of scripture, when we talk about the sermon, when we talk about what God's doing in our lives, when we confront one another in our sin and we speak the truth, when we practice the one another's given in the New Testament and we love one another enough to want to see each other grow and to be conformed to the image of Christ. So what I think is happening here is that each person in this room is a tool in God's hand. We're tools in God's hands to be used to shape and form one another to the image of Christ. And so you are a tool in God's hand to shape and form other believers, and they need you to do that, just like you need the other believers in here to speak the truth in love to you and to shape you. That's the work that God wants to do in his church. That's how the church is built, and that's how it grows. And as it grows, there's an end goal here. There's something that we, as the body, are growing into. And he describes that in two different ways, one in verse 21, one in verse 22. So look at verse 21. In whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. So first of all, we are a holy temple. We are growing into a holy temple. You know the word holy? It means set apart. We, as the church, are being set apart for God's use. We are distinct from the world. We need to understand ourselves this way. Well, what is the particular use that we are being set apart for? Look at verse 22. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now, to properly understand the significance of this, that we are a holy temple set apart 
for God's use so that he can dwell in us by the Spirit. That sounds kind of disconnected there. But you need to think about who he is writing this letter to. So he's writing this letter to believers in a Roman city, Ephesus. And in the city of Ephesus, if you go back to the book of Acts, you find out there is a temple built in the city of Ephesus, a massive temple. And it's built to a god, Artemis. In fact, there's this whole crazy scene that goes down in Ephesus where they end up chanting about Artemis for hours on end because of what Paul did here. And so if you lived in this city, you were raised believing that the god Artemis lived in this temple. And it was significant for you, and you were very proud of that reality. So if you're a Gentile and you're raised here, then you believe that a physical temple, an actual place, was the dwelling place of deity. But that's also true of Jews, isn't it? In the Old Testament, one of the major distinctives of Israel was that Yahweh God dwelt in their temple. He lived there. And his presence is what they longed for. They wanted to come to the temple. David talks about this, to be near to God. And so the Ephesians were proud of their temple where they believed a deity lived. The Jews were proud of their temple where God really did reside really did live there, and they longed him and wanted to be near him and near his presence. But now, what Paul is saying here is that Jews and Gentiles no longer look to a physical temple to come into the presence of God and to receive blessing from him in his presence. Instead, what happens now is God has set apart the church, and he's growing the church in holiness in order to be a proper dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Listen to 1 Corinthians 3. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? This is not talking about your physical body. Paul talks about that elsewhere. But this is talking about the church. This is is a plural you, you all together, y'all, as they say in Virginia. Do you not know that you all are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? This means that the power and the blessing of God is fully available and present to the church through the Holy Spirit. And so we can come to him in worship and praise and adoration and experience his presence together. Now, this is not an identity to be taken lightly, all right? This is significant because look at what Paul says next in 1 Corinthians 3. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are, you all are that temple. So, do you know what the context of this warning is in 1 Corinthians 3? It's division in the church. Paul is saying there are divisions among you. You identify with different teachers It's not a place of unity. And so the warning here is about destroying God's temple, the church, through division, through strife, through gossip, through jealousy. That's quite a warning. 
So rather than destroying God's temple, what should we be doing? We should be pursuing the building up of his body in holiness and alignment with the cornerstone. That's what we should be all about. And so how do we do this? How do we actively engage what he's describing here in verses 19 to 22? There are lots of suggestions and maybe some applications have come into your mind, but let me just give you a couple to try to point you in the right direction here. So if, we're, if this is true, if we are God's dwelling place by the Spirit and he lives among us and he's growing us in holiness in order to align us with the cornerstone to be his dwelling place, if that is true of us, if that's our identity, then it simply will not be enough to show up on Sunday mornings alone. That's not enough. Now, Sunday morning worship, showing up here on Sunday morning, this is, that's the starting point. That's the minimum. If, you, if you're not doing that, then you're not even engaged in this process at all. How can you be a part of growing together into a dwelling place for the Lord if you're not here worshiping the body corporately together? This is certainly the highlight of the week for the church, and it's important. But this is the starting point, and Sunday mornings have to bleed over into other areas of life and other interactions with one another. I mean, that's why I think Paul uses this language of members together of the household of God. We're family. And so far too often what we do is we tend to think of the Sunday gathering and of church as an activity that we participate in every once in a while. And so what I think Paul is pressing here is the church is your new identity. If you're a believer in Christ, you are the church, corporately together with one another. So this author described it this way, and I thought this was helpful. Describing the new man. He's been converted. He's a believer in Christ now. And he's not just an individual. Here's what he says. His whole being is now enveloped in a new atmosphere, controlled by a new environment. He is, if one may put it so, not so much a man who has joined a new club as a child adopted into a new family. The church is the total environment of his life rather than one among the circles in which he moves. Changes everything. New family, not just a club that you do an activity at once a week. The second thing, I think, application point of this, if this picture is true of us together, aligning with Christ, being built up into the church as a dwelling place of God, then I think the work that Christ is doing as we speak the truth in love to one another is that he's shaping our character to better reflect him and who he is. We're becoming different people in how we interact with one another. I mean, you can see this in Ephesians 4. Look over there. I feel like we read this, these verses every week, but that's okay. They're great verses. Verse 1, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, the calling of the, the church, the identity of the church as the dwelling place of God. That's what he's talking about. So what does that look like? With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Your character begins to look like this as the work of God is done in growing the church. 
But it also starts to look like, I think, Philippians 2. So, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. And here's what that mind looks like. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And I'll tell you, if if I could just get that mindset in my brain and imitate Christ in that way, if all of us individually and then together could think like this, it would revolutionize life together in the church. Consider others as more important than yourself. I mean, this is exactly, I think, what Paul is talking about when he talks about aligning ourselves to the cornerstone. This is what the cornerstone did. This is what he looked like. This is what it means to imitate Jesus. It's to have this mindset. And then, of course, you know, in this passage, Paul talks about Christ's sacrificial death on the cross. This is aligning ourselves to the cornerstone. And so the work that God needs to do is he needs to cut the rough edges off of us, and those rough edges are pride and self-centeredness. And so we need to be humbled. I need to be humbled and shaped to think of others as more important than myself. And that's how growth happens in the church body. And so those are just a couple of applications, but each of those flow out of this this corporate understanding of who we are. If we don't think of the church as being part of the fellow citizens of the kingdom, and if we don't think of the church as a household of God, and I'm a member of that household, and if I don't think of the church as based on the cornerstone of Christ, and everything's aligning with him, then I'll never get to these applications. And so do you think of yourself this way? Do I think of myself this way as Paul's describing here? Or do I think of the Christian life as my Christian life? And I'm working this thing out as an individual and doing what I can. Do I view the church as more like Walmart or Meyer? And I show up once a week to get what I need. And then I go home. And do what I need to with what I got there. If we have been reconciled to God, then we've been reconciled to one another and we need each other. I need you to knock off the rough edges of my self-centeredness and pride and vice versa. Because we, are, we have the privilege of being built into God's holy temple, his dwelling place. We can experience his blessing and his power and grow into a holy temple where he lives. And so we have that opportunity to do that together. So let's live that out as we understand who we really are in Christ. Let's pray. Father, this is quite a vision that Paul has given us here of the church. What a glorious thing to be a part of this. I pray that you would impress this on our hearts. Help us to understand our corporate identity Help us to align ourselves with the cornerstone, with Christ, as we are built into a holy temple where you dwell. 
Thank you for the privilege of being a part of this temple, of your house. What a high calling that truly is. And I pray that we would live accordingly and walk accordingly. We ask these things in the name of the cornerstone, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.